Amen. He is worthy of our praise. Good morning, church. My name is Justin, one of the elders here. It'll be my last time for a little while and already feeling the feels. If you have your Bibles, there's nothing that squashes the feelings like the tabernacle instructions at the end of Exodus. So if you'd open that, we're going to be in Exodus 35 to 40. We're actually closing our series in Exodus this morning, uh, and we're going to be looking at these last six chapters. Uh, but, but first, I wanted to introduce it this way. I went to my niece's graduation at Sohi just a few weeks ago. It was cool. It was cool to see. Uh, it was kind of the first COVID class to graduate. These were the freshmen uh, in 2020, which is pretty wild to think about that as a timeline. Uh, this, they were singing along with I Hope You Dance. Glad to hear that Leanne Womack is still relevant. Uh, and, and to see the, grad, the gamble of, of having an outdoor graduation pay off, uh, this, especially this year that we currently seem to be having. Uh, but to be honest, as someone who believes that Jesus is our only hope, our only meaning for life, the words of inspiration from valedictorians, staff, and teachers, to me just kind of fell flat. Be kind to yourself. Reach for the stars, pun probably intended. Grasp for the brighter path. And I thought, really? Like, this is the call? This is the hope, the motivation for these young men and women as they go out into the great unknown to be kind to yourself? And I wasn't being a hater. I wasn't up in the stands like, boo! Get this secular drivel out of there. Jesus, Jesus. Like, no. But it just made me think, man, we are made for more than this. And, and I think, man, actually what it made me think of in part was how often we, even as Jesus followers, can ring just as hollow where we often just kind of echo secular wisdom with a little bit of Jesus sprinkled on top, a flimsy faith that rarely gets further than, well, God exists and he wants me to be happy, so just kind of be nice to other people and, and it'll all work out. I think it's easy to reduce God to a weekly church attendance where we just massage our conscience, kind of make us feel better about ourselves. We're running on the path. Give me a shot of Jesus juice so I can keep on running and going in the direction that I want to go. And in, in this way, I think we, we can find our God. Uh, the agnostic author Julian Barnes, he said it this way, there seems to be little point in a religion which is merely a weekly social event. That's all it is. He says, as opposed to one which tells you exactly how to live, which colors and stains everything. And I think to this point, I would agree with Barnes. If that's all our faith is, it's as trivial as reach for the stars. So then, of course, the question is, what is our purpose in life? And the good news is God has told us in his word what we're created for. And it is so much more than just be kind to yourself. We're created, the Bible tells us, for a whole life of worship. That worship should stain, should color every aspect of our lives, not just for an hour a week. That we're called to love, God said, to love him with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, all of our strength. That's worship. Worship does not equal singing in church. Romans 12 says, give your bodies to God because of all he's done for you. Let them, your whole life, be a holy, living sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. 
Paul says this is truly the way to worship him. It's the act of giving all of us to all of him. See, here's the reality. We're we're always worshiping something. We're giving ourselves to something. And if it's not to God, it is something or someone else. And and in in the secular modern West, I think in particular, it's usually some form of autonomous self-fulfillment. In other words, I do what I want, right? We really are worshiping self in that sense. This morning, as we finish through our, our, book of, our study of the book of Exodus, we see, man, the whole purpose of this book is, is worship. In fact, the, the Exodus, God's rescue of his people, he said was for worship. He tells Moses uh, this in, in 8.1 of Exodus. Th- then the Lord said to Moses, go tell Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Let my people go, huh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would get it in one more time. Now we're good. So that, here's why, here's why he needs to release my people. So that they may worship me. The reason he wanted to see their salvation was for his exaltation. And that's the same reason he saved us, brothers and sisters. It's for his glory, to worship our God. As we look today at the final six chapters of the book of Exodus, to see the instructions of the tabernacle in excruciating detail, we will see... This is the purpose. We're gonna, if, if you were with us, uh, in, in chapters 30, 25 to 31, we saw the tabernacle's instruction. And now here in the final six chapters of the book, we see the tabernacle's construction. Now you might be saying, wait a second, Justin. We had to suffer through all of the details of the tabernacle's instruction. And now we have to go back over them again, like if the first time wasn't bad enough. In the words of this lady, ain't nobody got time for that, right? But we've got to understand here, from God's point of view and from Israel's point of view, the tabernacle was the centerpiece of Israel's life of worship to God. And this tedious detail in our Bibles underlines how serious God takes his people's worship of himself. Like, this is the most important thing in their lives, in relationship with him. It's what God most wanted from them and from us today. And that worship of himself ought to stain literally every aspect of our lives. And I think there's a lot for us to glean here, therefore. And what a whole life of worship looks like to our God. Three points I see in the text. I want to give a shout out to Bobby Jameson, kind of uh, inspiration for this outline. First of all, worship is obeying God's commands. So if you have your Bibles, we're in Exodus 35. Uh, we're just going to look at the f- first verse for this first point because it kind of colors the rest of the, the passage. So Exodus 35, verse 1. It says, Moses assembled the entire Israelite community and said to them, these are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. And then he's going to get into those commands. And we see this this phrase, all the Lord has commanded, 25 times in these six chapters, underlining to do all that God has commanded. And we're going to see, peeking ahead at 3942, the Israelites had done all the work according to everything the Lord had commanded Moses. And I see two principles of worship in this. First of all, worship is complete obedience to all God has commanded. Not 90%, 100%. But then the other principle is that worship of God must conform to the word of God. And this is the same for us today, individually and corporately as the church. Like, we don't get to make up how we worship God. We don't have the authority to do that, nor do we have the wisdom to know how to worship him rightly in a way that honors him. 
And so throughout all of the word of God, and for us, the church, explicitly in the New Testament, we have commands of how to worship him. We have examples in the book of Acts from the apostles and early church. Worship does not begin with action from us. It begins with revelation from God. God informs us to how to worship him rightly. And you think about it this way. What, what would you say if someone kept talking to you about how amazing you were, but then never did anything that you actually told them to do? So they said, man, you, like, dude, you're so smart. Like, your advice is so good. Like, your counsel is so wise. I love your insight, but I'm not actually going to do any of it. Like, how, that's insincere, right? That, that's, that's flattery at best. That's hypocrisy. And to worship God is, is both to first listen to him, but then it's to actually do what he says. This is what James tells us. But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. See, this is the Christian life. Yes, it starts with trusting Christ for rescue from sin and death and hell. But then, what did Jesus say in the Great Commission? When we go out to make disciples, we teach them to obey all Jesus commanded. And this is, so with Israel, God saved Israel from Egypt, and then he instructs them through his law how to live every aspect of their lives, which is conformed around his worship. And you and I, worship should stain everything. It should stain how we brush our teeth. If you brush them, they won't be stained, I guess. Uh, it should stain how we do our job. It should stain how we spend a free evening at home when no one else is around or looking. It should stain how we think about others and how every word comes out of our mouth and what words come out of our mouths. You see, to say, Lord, Lord, but then just live however I want is a lie. We say belief is evidenced by life, by the way that we live. So ask yourself this morning, in what areas of my life am I not actually worshiping God? And I will let the Holy Spirit do that work in your heart. But I want to say that sometimes it's, it's areas of commission, things that you're doing wrong that you ought not do. But then sometimes it's also omission, where it's something that the Spirit is saying you ought to do that you're stubbornly not doing. We see worship here is obeying all that God has commanded. The second thing we see here in this passage is that worship is giving what God supplies. It's giving back to God what he first supplies. So first of all, we see voluntary treasure. Let's continue on in chapter 35. Skip down to verse 4. It says, then the Mo it's okay, this is a great verse. Th then Moses said to the entire, I told you, excruciating details. Then Moses said to the entire Israelite community, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take up an offering among you for the Lord. Let everyone whose heart is willing bring this, uh, this as the Lord's offering. And he lists off all these things to bring. Gold, silver, bronze. Sounds like they're going to have some Olympics. That'd be cool. Uh, blue, purple, scarlet yarn, fine linen, and goat hair. Let's just stop right there at the goat hair. Um, so I, I thought this could be a cool principle for us to do this summer. We're going to recarpet the gym. And I thought, man, all of you who have willing hearts, bring some goat hair, and we'll see what, what happens, right? For the Diamond M Ranch people, that might not just be a hypothetical. Um, but notice here also, I think he's underlining the voluntary nature of these gifts. Look down at verse 21. He continues, everyone whose heart was moved and whose spirit prompted him came and brought this offering to the Lord. Verse 22, men and women both came. All who had willing hearts brought brooches. I don't want any, I don't want any unwilling brooches being brought, right? 
And then down in verse 29, so the Israelites brought a free will offering to the Lord. All the men and women whose hearts prompted them to bring something. See, God created us to worship him, but he is honored by voluntary worship. This is why I believe God created us with a choice. God didn't want robots that had to worship him. He wanted hearts that would choose to worship him. But then we have to consider, where did this treasure, they're bringing all this gold and silver and bronze, where did they get it in the first place? Remember, these people for 400 years were poor slaves in Egypt. But you remember back toward the beginning of our story what God told Moses. He said, I'm going to actually prompt the heart of the Egyptians to give the people gold and silver. It says in Exodus 12, the Israelites acted on Moses' word and asked the Egyptians for silver and gold items and for clothing. And the Lord gave the people such favor with the Egyptians that they gave them what they requested. So, so here we see... In chapter 35, they're just giving back to God what he already gifted them back in Exodus 12. And that favor that was shown is that same word for grace. The people of Israel are just giving God back what in his grace he first supplied them with. And then voluntary treasure, it's also volitional talent. It's a synonym. It's it's a willing talent that they had. Let's continue on. Look down in verse 30. Moses said to the Israelites, Look, the Lord has appointed by name Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. He has filled him with God's spirit, with wisdom, understanding, and ability in every kind of craft, to design artistic words in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut gemstones for mounting, and to carve wood for work in every kind of artistic craft. He has also given both to him and Aholiab, son of Ahissamach. Remember, we got a lot of baby names here, and I know we got a lot of babies coming, so we're running out of names. You're welcome. Uh, of the tribe of Dan, the ability, and he, I love this, the ability to teach others. So not just the skill, but the ability to teach others those skills. Verse 35, he has filled them with skill to do all the work of a gem cutter, a designer, an embroiderer in blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, and a weaver. You can hear all the different jobs here. Then they can do every kind of craft and design artistic designs. Bezalel, Aholiab, and all the skilled people are to work based on everything the Lord has commanded. The Lord has given them wisdom and understanding to know how to do all the work constructing, uh, of constructing the sanctuary. So Moses summoned Bezalel, Aholiab, and every skilled person in whose heart the Lord had placed wisdom, all whose hearts moved them to come to the work and to do it. So, so do you hear this? That just like the treasure that the Lord first gave them, God gives them very specific skills, trades, crafts, and then he gives them the wisdom of how to employ them and the wisdom of how to teach others to do the same. Now notice these are the same talents and treasures that the people had used back in 32 to make the golden calf, to cheat on God for themselves. They are now using it for right worship of Yahweh. And you and I, we we have a choice as well. We can use the talents and treasures God has given us for ourselves, for lovers less wild, idols, or for the Lord. And this is the beautiful thing in Exodus and for us today. When God redeems his people... He also renews them and restores them. And what's so sweet to see here is the people are now able to use the talent and treasure God gave them for the original purposes that he gave them. And this is for us as well. 
before we were believers, when we were walking in darkness as sinners, we used our words to build ourselves up and tear others down. But now we can use our words to build others up. That we can use our skills no longer just for our own glory or to compete with other people, but we can actually use those same skills to bless other people. And the wealth that we had to maybe hoard up for ourselves to have some false notion of a secure future or to just blow it on the temporary pleasures, we can now use to advance God's kingdom and the gospel of his son. But notice here that only God could give them both the skill and the will to do the work in the first place. And isn't this what Philippians 2 tells us? It says, for it is God who is working in you both to will, that's the word of desire, both to want to do these things and the skill, the work, according to his good purpose. See, my old default was to use my God-given skill for, for myself. But now, by God's grace, he's changing my desires, changing my will and my motivation. Israel's responsibility was to build the tabernacle. Our responsibility today is to build the body of Christ. That's what Ephesians 2 tells us. And just like those temple artisans, uh, God has gifted his people. He has gifted his people to build his tabernacle. No longer a building, it's, it's his, his church, the body of Christ. And he's gifted us, Ephesians 4 says, with leaders and servants who he has given the skill to do it and to teach others how to do it, to equip the saints for the ministry. And how do we build Christ's body? Ephesians 4 says by serving each other, by speaking the gospel truths to one another. Corinthians 12 says we use the gifts that the Spirit gave us in the first place for the common good. So for you this morning, what talent, treasure has God given you that you can, in love, voluntarily give back to him? And what I love about this passage is it's not just like churchy stuff that we might think of like playing the guitar or preaching a sermon. These guys were good with wood and with metal. Like maybe you know how to crunch numbers. Maybe you know how to cook a meal. I know some of you can. I know some of you can't. But that's, <laughs> I'm, I'm with you. Right? Some of you can tell a good story. Some of you can build a house. Like we can use, God has given us all of these skills for his glory and for the good of the people around us. We see a principle here that giving is an act of worship. It's an act of worship. It's how we show God that we value him and his ways, his purposes more than anything else. And, and really don't hear in this, this is not an underhanded way to get you to give us more money. This is all of us, all of our heart, all of our treasure, all of our talent for him. And so what I see in this is number two things. First of all, giving is a test for our heart. There is no better test for our heart than what we're going to do with what God has given us. And a practical way to think about this is when you walk into a room, which question do you first ask yourself? Is it, who is in this room going to meet my needs? Or man, whose needs in this room can I help meet? Or, or to say it another way, two different mindsets. We can come in going, here I am. Or, there you are. I see you. And I want to love you. To come to serve. And here's the dirty little secret. There's actually more joy in that. Like how many selfish people do you know that are just super happy? The Bible teaches it's better to give than receive. It's actually better. There's more. It can be harder initially, but there's actually more fruit, more joy, more happiness in having a, an others and God-centered point of view than just being consumed with self. That's misery. The second thing, though, is that giving is also a training for our hearts. It tests where our hearts are at, but it also helps train our hearts to get them where they need to go. Jesus taught, well, wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. 
So, so do you hear that? So where you invest your affections is what your heart's going to continue to incline. You're going to grow an appetite and a desire for those things. So if we keep serving others, if we keep praising God, we will over time develop a deeper, sweeter, hungrier appetite for those things. This is heart training. And what's the result of all this? I love this in verse, uh, chapter 36. Look down at verse 5. The artisans told, uh, said to Moses, the people are bringing more than is needed for the construction of the Lord that uh, commanded to be done. After Moses gave an order, they sent a proclamation throughout the camp saying, Stop! Let no man or woman make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. So the people stopped. The materials were sufficient for them to do all the work. And then I love this. There was more than enough. There was more than enough. It's all the, the Chosen's reimagining of the story of the feeding of the 5,000. The disciples are going, there's no way that Jesus can pull this off. But not only does he pull it off, their jaws are on the floor as they come back with these 12 baskets overflowing with more fish and bread. Like whatever God calls us to, he doesn't just give us the grace to squeak by. Philippians 4 says he's given us exceedingly and abundantly above anything that we could ask or imagine. So church, when he sends us out on mission, he gives us abundantly more than we need to be equal to the task by his grace, not of ourselves. Worship is doing all that God has commanded. It's giving back to him what he has first supplied to us. But finally, worship is actually impossible on our own. We finish up the, the Exodus by, by seeing all the tabernacle instructions, all that he has commanded uh, with their talent and treasure to, to do for him. And I'll spare you reading through it. But, but as we, we see it culminate here in chapter 39, so as you skip forward, you just see all the detail of all the construction, obeying all he's commanded, and then let's land here in 39, 42, and 43. We read this earlier. The Israelites had done all the work according to everything the Lord had commanded Moses. Moses inspected all the work they had accomplished. They had done just as the Lord commanded, then Moses blessed them. And I hear a lot of creation language in this. Did you hear? Moses looked at all the work, inspected it all, and, and implied what? He saw that it was good. And then he blessed them. Does that not make us think about Genesis 1, where God sees that each day's creation is good, and then he blesses humanity to go out and live the life that he's called them to. And we see this here. And then he skipped down to verse uh, 33 of chapter 40. It says, Moses finished the work. The work has been completed. And what is the result of this creation of the tabernacle, verse 34 tells us, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This was the point. This is why they constructed the tabernacle, was so that God's presence might dwell among them. And so here we have God moving in again amongst his people. And for the first time since the Garden of Eden, there's this picture painted of, of, of peace on earth, God and man dwelling together, and it's all good, right? We have this record scratch moment in the next verse. Look at verse 35. Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud, but because, because the cloud rested on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now wait a second. It says, when God's glory comes in, Moses can't. Now, this would have been jarring. This would have been shocking. Let me see your shocked face. I know, me too. I did. <laughs> didn't see it coming. And I think this is intentionally shocking. It's to make us say, wait a second. 
The, the whole point of this was so that they could go in and experience the glory of God. You would expect it to hear to say, and then Moses and God frolicked in fields of pomegranates happily ever after, Selah. But that's, that's not what it says. It's a, and the jarring part here is, if, man, if Moses can't go in, if Moses can't go in, who can? After all the instruction and then all the obedience to that instruction, they are still shut out. Now, is this just some lame ending to a, a, a great book? I think it's an intentional plot twist. I think it's one of those classic season finale cliffhanger type of things. Will Moses get in? Are the people deserted in the desert? And what's with all the pomegranates? Find out next time on the Torah, right? I always felt like, to me, as I read through this, like the beginning of Exodus was all this exciting stuff, and the, and the Pharaoh, and the plagues, and the Exodus, and then you get to the back, and it's just so boring with cubits, and talents, and pomegranates, oh my, but really, I think the, the drama at the beginning of Exodus is just a shadow. It's just a picture of the greater problem that they were facing. Because the real drama here is not how do the people of Israel get free from Pharaoh, but how will these sinful people once again dwell in the midst of their holy God? Because here we see they're free from Pharaoh, but, but the door back into Eden is still not open. And that is what I believe. This is not a period at the end of Exodus. It's a dot, dot, dot. And it takes us to what the next book of the Bible is all about. Leviticus holds the key to the drama that you never heard that before. This is the part you always skip over in your Bible reading plan, you sinners. Leviticus is all about how people, how the people of Israel are made a way back into the presence of God. And spoiler alert, he opens the door. Look at Leviticus 9. Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. He came down after sacrificing the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the fellowship offering. Moses and Aaron then entered the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came from the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar that indicated he accepted it. It was pleasing to him. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell face down. That's worship. How does he do, how can they now, what, what, what about Exodus? How can they, or Leviticus, how can they enter the presence of God and his glory? Well, it's interesting. The first five books of the Bible, they all go together. It's called the Torah. Uh, and, and, it's, and, and they were all written as a, a cohesive literary unit. And remember, we talked about how in Hebrew, the point of the story is often found in the middle of the story. And in these first five books, it's no exception because in the literal center of these five books, in the middle book of Leviticus, and then the middle of Leviticus is Leviticus chapter 16, which talks about the Day of Atonement. And it was on the Day of Atonement when the qualified priest presented the necessary and acceptable sacrifices on behalf of the people so that they could experience the fullness of the glory of God. But we still see here in Leviticus, this is a temporary, a, a, a moment of, of a whiff of that glory. It's still yet a shadow to the light that would enter into the world and make a way back for all of God's people. You see, guys, Left to our own devices, we can't worship God. We won't 
worship God. Our sin nature. We, we cannot love him with all of our hearts. We cannot love our neighbor as ourselves. Are you kidding me? None of us can stand in his presence. As sinners, if we waltz into the holy of holies, it gets us just as dead as it would have gotten one of the Israelites. But what is impossible with man is possible with our God. And God sent his only son into the world as both the qualified priest and himself the necessary, acceptable sacrifice so that on the true day of atonement, See, where, where the Torah centered in on the day, of, the day of Atonement, all of human history centered on this moment on the cross. When God's wrath toward our sin was completely satisfied, proven when he rose his son up from the dead and Jesus ascended into heaven to make a way back into dwelling with God in Eden for good and forever. Hallelujah. When we look back at these three points, we see that Jesus is, is the focal point of all of this. That only Jesus ever fully obeyed God's commands. That only Jesus ever wholly gave back to God what God had first supplied him. We see these things in the 33 years of his life here on earth. And it's only Christ that can make our worship of God possible. Because the Bible teaches only through Christ is our worship acceptable to God. We needed him as a priest. This is, I love the teaching in Hebrews 13. Therefore, through him, that's Jesus, through Christ, let us continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of lips that confess his name as Father, Son, and Spirit. Don't neglect to do what is good and to share generous voluntary giving of our talent and treasure. For God is pleased with such sacrifice. But it's only sacrifice through our intercessor, Jesus. You know, as we've been reading through Exodus, one of the things that stood out to me here at the end is, wait a second, who are these people? Like, do you remember, like, throughout the whole story, we found them to be nothing but grumbly, faithless, whiny little babies. And now they're freely giving away their most costly possessions. They're obeying every single one of God's commands. We're getting like Jekyll and Hyde whiplash here. Like it says here in this part of the story that the people's generosity is so overwhelming that it had to be restrained. How cool if someone came up to you and said like, dude, you're being too generous. You're like, I'm sorry, I just love Jesus so much. I'm just throwing cash at people's faces. Like, this is incredible. What happened? At the beginning of the story, they had seen God's judgment on Pharaoh and his mercy to them, which would have been astounding to witness that. But I think one of the big turning points in, in the storyline that we're given here is in chapter 32, when they cheat on God, when they break the covenant and turn their back on the great lover of their souls, this time they, they personally experience both God's judgment, but also God's mercy. They see him be faithful to them even when they're faithless to him. And I think they're changed in a way that's only possible when you have firsthand experienced the waterfall of God's mercy on us as sinners. And similarly, guys, when we see God's grace fully in the person and work of Jesus, and we see that applied to, to us personally, it transforms us to be people of love, of generosity, 
of obedience, not, listen, not to earn God's favor, but because in Jesus we have it firmly, securely, and eternally. But, but I also believe that just seeing, seeing this love, seeing this work is not enough. And that's why he didn't leave it there with Jesus going back up to heaven. He sent us his Holy Spirit to indwell us, that we are now his little personal portable tabernacles wandering around on this earth. And his spirit gifts us, just like here in, in, in Exodus, he gifts us the skill and the will to use what he's given us for the construction of his body, of his building, the church. All we're doing as his people is simply giving back to him what he in his grace through Jesus first gave to us. See, this is more than a love motive. I think it falls short when we say, man, just look at Jesus dying on the cross for your sins and you're just going to want to then live your life for him. We still needed something deeper. We needed a heart transplant. And that's exactly what we're given. So that now with the spirit in us, we can both will and work to do all that he's commanded us. And then the book of Exodus ends with these three verses. Look at them with me. The Israelites, verse 36, set out whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle throughout all the stages of their journey. If the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and there was a fire inside the cloud by night, visible to the entire house of Israel throughout all the stages of their journey. That's how the book ends. People moving with God's presence. It says he, it, they stopped when his cloud stopped. They moved when his cloud moved. The Lord is directing their steps. He is with them. He is leading them. And he is walking with them every step of the way. And I think where we leave Israel here in the story of Exodus is similar to where you and I find ourselves today. We are God's people, his covenant people, the church. God is dwelling in our midst through the Spirit but we are still pilgrims in the wilderness. We are being faithfully led by our God, and we are awaiting that sweet day when we cross the Jordan into his presence. And we experience the full weight of his glory seen in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. And on that day, the glory of the Lord will not just descend and fill one tabernacle in one little spot on the earth, but Habakkuk says this, for the earth will be filled the knowledge of the Lord's glory as the waters cover the seas. And we, his people, not just Israel, but those from every tongue, tribe, and nation will do everything that he commands with generous hearts, worshiping our King rightly forever and ever. Amen. Thursday, June 1st, I begin a three-month sabbatical. This will be my last sermon until September. And it's sweet, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm excited to, to go do, but it's sad to leave here. 
You can look in your bulletins for an FAQ on just kind of the logistics of what and why. I just want to underline what I said last time I was up here. This is not, like, I'm not exhausted. This is not discipline being exercised on me in the church. Like, we're good. We're doing good. I'm going to come back, right, if the Lord wills. Somebody asked me that last week. And, and, and during this time, I'm, I'm going to be in the woods a lot, praise Jesus. I'm going to be reading a lot, praying a lot, spending lots of time with my family. We're going to be down in California for about six weeks, spending time with Jill's family. I'm going to be recharging the Jesus batteries. And it'll be sweet, but it'll be hard. Uh, we have a lot to look forward to here as a church this summer. This June, uh, many of you have, have already heard John, Don's, not Don, John Stubbs, I'm sure he's a great preacher too, but Don Stubbs from Off the Wall, one of our sister ministries in Ohio, is going to come speak with us in a couple of weeks. And then Bruce Barlow, a longtime member of our fellowship. He's a preacher down in Indiana. Uh, you'll love Bruce. He'll, he'll finish up the rest of June and the first week of July. And then in July, uh, speaking of beautiful people. Ross Schold and his beautiful face will be preaching uh, throughout the month of July. And then in August, uh, Clancy Cruz, another pastor from our church, uh, from our fellowship of churches. He was actually our fellowship moderate leader for about three years. Dynamic speaker, a passionate man for the word of God and his people. You're going to love Clancy as well. He'll finish things up in, in the month of August. Uh, but we also have a great team of elders here, of staff here. Ministry team leaders here are going to help shoulder the load. Ross, in a lot of ways, is going to kind of slide into my kind of first responder role. So if there's an emergency, call Ross. That's going to be my new uh, mantra. Someone call, call Ross, right? Something wrong? Call Ross. Leave me alone. <laughs> and we're going to, here in a, in a couple minutes, we're going to pray for me. But what I'm asking you guys be praying for our leaders here as well and to be encouraging them show up hear them declare the word of God encourage them in the front lines of ministry and help shoulder because again we are all the body of Christ doing this ministry together and, and here are my parting words do not reduce your worship of God to a Sunday morning the purpose of my sabbatical break. It's to rest. It's to worship. And, I, I, and by the way, I don't think that sabbaticals should be unique to pastors. We all need rest and Sabbath. That's how we're created. So I'm taking a break from, from being a pastor, not from worshiping God through Jesus. Like actually, this is a break to step deeper into that worship before my God, to be still and know that he's my God and to know that he loves me, not based on my performance as a pastor, not based on how I crush or don't crush sermons and staff meetings and counseling sessions, but on who I am in Christ. And that's why he loves you too. And it's been sweet and it's encouraging to hear that people are going to miss me. I'm glad it's not ding dong, the pastor's gone. Hooray! Like, can't you take six months, pastor? But a worship is a life-loving God with all of ourselves. Worship is not listening to one guy preach once a week. That is a flimsy, be kind to yourself faith that will not sustain you and it certainly will not stain all of your life. My charge is let's keep worshiping our God together this summer. Ross is going to talk about this next week. What does it look like to follow Jesus amid the summer craziness in Alaska? We need to hear that word. But in my absence, Jesus 
is still the head of this church as he always has been. And we are still, each of us, called to go out and be disciples, make disciples, serve, grow, and worship our good king. Worship is not just coming to receive a sermon and a couple of songs to feel happier about our lives the rest of the week. Worship is obeying all that he's commanded us to use the talent and treasure he's uniquely given each of us in the first place to give it back to him as an act of worship and service for his glory and for the good of others. So as we close, I just want to give the spirit a minute to speak to your heart. What talent and treasure has he given you specifically? And how can you use those gifts, those skills, those passions, those spheres of influence in your life? How can you use that for your family, for the neighborhood you live in, for the community that we live in, for the vulnerable, for the glory of God in the rest of the world? But above all, man, this is, obedience to God is, worship of God is to look to Jesus. In John 6, he said, this is the work of God, to believe in his son. So we want to fix our eyes firmly on Jesus together. That's why it's sweet to end our time together this morning in communion. So we'll do that in just a few minutes. But if you'd bow your heads with me. Father God, we thank you for your word instructing us here of what you, what you require of us for a life fully of, full of obedience. Giving all of ourselves to love you and neighbor. Lord, also, as with Moses, unable to enter the tabernacle, the reminder of our inability and unwillingness in the, in the flesh to do those things, but then and above all, the way that Jesus Christ rescued us from ourselves and from a sinful world to be able to worship you rightly once again. So as we sing in response to this revelation of how to worship you, Father, would you stir in our hearts in the way that only you can to will and to work for your good purposes. We can only do that through Jesus, our true and better Moses. It's in his name that all God's people said.